Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. This week, we're re-airing an episode from several years ago about how things go when two parents are raising a sighted child, but one or more of the parents happens to be blind. That is the case with Ron and Denise Miller, who are raising Russell, who was then two years old. We also raised two-sided children with one parent, namely Pete, being blind. We'll discuss a variety of aspects of parenting under this situation, including feeding, playing, reading, and driving. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip is about keeping track of what's important. What would you impart as just key things to know or things to keep in mind? You know, what things stick out for you? You know, I think the biggest thing is, despite any trepidations you might have, to realize that if you're willing to be flexible, try things maybe in a different way, be a little patient, learn new skills, it all works out in the end. We have nothing but good memories and never really had any big problems at any age with the kids, you know, related to blindness. And, you know, just the fact that you and I are blind fathers who change dirty diapers, let me tell you, there are many friends of mine who are about my age where the male in the relationship never changed any diaper. So, you know, these things can be done. And it's just like we work out the rest of our lives. I think we find ways of doing the things we want to do, even if we might be a little uh, worried about it at first. First of all, you need to make sure that everybody is safe. But beyond that, any successful long-term relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship or parent and child, it's based on a lot of trust. And you have to trust each other. You have to trust yourself. You have to have a pretty realistic idea of what your and everybody else's limitations are. And then just make it work. Yeah, I think that really is true. And and don't be afraid to experiment. That's very, very true. Yeah, I think we all find what works for ourselves. You know, sometimes as visually impaired folks, maybe we have to be a little bit more structured and organized in order to keep things where we can find them, make sure situations are safe. But, you know, beyond that, every parent runs into many of these same issues to different degrees, whether their sight is good or not. Support for Eyes on Success is provided by Ira, an app that remotely connects people who are blind or have low vision to trained agents for access to visual information. Details are available at 1-800-835-1934. Let's start by meeting Ron and Denise Miller. Well, hi, it's great to be with you guys again. I am Ron Miller, and with me is my wonderful wife, Denise Miller. And we are two-thirds of the Miller family. With us, who already in bed, is uh, our two-year-old grandson, who we are raising. His name is Russell. So just so our other listeners know, one of you is sighted and one is not. Can you describe your situation? I'm blind. I've been blind since birth and uh, was born uh, two and a half months premature and have what is 
now called retinopathy of prematurity um, over my lifetime. I think it's had three or four names that I've been aware of. I had a little bit of vision when I was very young in my right eye. I could count fingers up to about six feet away. So I've got color concepts and basic spatial concepts and things. But that all went away pretty quickly, and uh, I'm I'm basically down to uh, virtually no light perception or anything now. And I am sighted, and Russell is sighted, and he can see fire extinguishers (laughs) at a million miles away. There's nothing wrong with his vision. And I am fully sighted, as are both of our children. And I've been blind since birth. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. This week's focus topic is raising a sighted child when one or more of the parents is blind. So normally in this show, we interview other people, but there have been a couple of exceptions from that situation where somebody else interviewed us and now it's your turn to interview us. Our children are almost 30 and although we did raise them with one blind and one sighted parent, we've long since forgotten what the questions are that parents of very young children have. So you've still got the questions. Go ahead. You know, my questions aren't the huge ones, and Denise and I have been married now for 20 years, but um, this is my first time raising a uh, an infant through toddlerhood and up into bigger personhood, and we've worked out a lot of stuff, and it's funny because Russell has been a big part of working that out. It amazes me how much they sort of adapt as we go, but for me, it's the little stuff. I think what started me off was I was trying to figure out how to brush his teeth, and it takes at least three hands. There's one to feel his head, one to hold the toothbrush, and one to figure out how to feel around the inside of his mouth. And, of course, I've got these giant fingers compared to his little body, you know. I think before we get into the nuts and bolts, can you tell us how many children you have? We have two children, and we've actually had them on the show as well. And when we asked them what they thought about having a blind father, there was dead silence. They're like, it's just normal. That's how they grew up. So our daughter is 29, and our son is 27. But it's interesting. As you say, as the blind parent of a child, when you think about them coming into the world, I remember... Me in particular, and you know, both of us, I think, had some trepidation about what is it going to be like. It's hard to anticipate the issues that you might run into. And as you say, many of them are kind of small issues. You run into them day to day. And over the years, we found that you do find ways of addressing them. But, you know, there was some trepidation there. Well, I remember before our eldest was born, Pete was all concerned. How am I going to find the kids? We need to put bells on the baby so I know where she is. Let me tell you, there was no question where she was. She made plenty of noise. So we never even bought the bells. We discovered squeaky shoes. <laughs> it was easy when he was crawling and he was fairly verbal. But when he started walking, he, I guess he was too busy thinking to make any noise. And he would just sort of go into stealth mode. And especially in the backyard, I was afraid I'd come, you know, galumphing down the, across the patio and just run his little self over. And so some friends of ours had squeaky shoes for their daughter. And we thought, wow, that's a neat thing. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, they can be kind of quiet outside on the grass as opposed to inside on hard floors. 
he's now outgrown his squeaky shoes, so he can go into stealth mode again. That's right. Well, you know what I did with our kids? When they got a little bit older, we used to play chase around the house. We had a circle that I could chase them around the house. And, of course, they were quite loud. I'd be running after them. those was all this, ah, laughing and screaming. And it was no problem finding them. Not to mention, thump, 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 thump. Whoever called it the pitter-patter of little feet never had a kid. Yeah. <laughs> As they got older, they learned that they could fool Daddy by being quiet. So they sneak around kind of stealthily, as you talked about there. So then the game was, I had to make them laugh. So I'd be snickering or telling little jokes, and <laughs> you'd hear these snickers wandering around the house. So I think that, you know, as a parent, you learn to be adaptable as the children are changing and going through their stages. I think that's very true and a very good point. As they grow, you know, you're, you're talking about, as we, we could say, maybe tracking them. But there are those times when you need them to come to you. Uh, we had an incident tonight where I really needed Russell to uh, to come back to me. I, I We just finished his bath. He loves baths. And I gave him his bath. I dried him off with his towel, stood up to put his towel on the towel hook, and he took off across the house with nothing on but a smile. And uh, <laughs> at age two, I don't want to keep him in that condition too long. There are some perils along the way that can <laughs> can occur. And uh, he was way across the house. And I said, Russell, come touch Pappy. Come here, come touch me. And he just wouldn't do it. He had too much else to do. How did you begin to build that behavior where they would come back and you could make a, a, you know, contact with them and find them? Wow. wow. You know, I remember chasing the kid around the house in the, almost the exact same <laughs> circumstance. <laughs> Soaking wet. <laughs> right. She, she jumped out of the tub and I was running around the house. But Nancy couldn't catch her either. You know, I mean, these kids just don't want to be caught. I mean, that was like, it was like trying to catch a greased pig. I have no idea how I got her. Oh, no. Fortunately, it happened inside and there wasn't a whole lot of danger. Where was she going to go? That's right. Well, fortunately, I was here. You know, at that point, I intervened and chased him down and made him go back and, and go touch Pappy, you know, go do what you're supposed to do. Yeah, I used to worry about that change in the kids. The, the first time I changed a diaper, I was taking my sweet time. We put uh, the kid up on the changing table, and I figured, okay, I have the little tabs here, and I got it all lined up. And, you know, I used to be pretty relaxed about it until there was an accident once. <laughs> I learned to be a lot more efficient about changing and <laughs> making sure I had it all ready beforehand. Hey, let me tell you something. Even sighted, you make sure you get it covered quickly. <laughs> I remember the first time I ever gave our son a bath when he was very young. I had avoided giving him a bath because I was afraid, you know, geez, if I lose his head, I might, you know, he might go into the water. I won't hear him. So I was always a little reticent about that. But I was home alone one day and I was sitting on the couch and he was on my lap. I was feeding him a bottle and everything was great. And all of a sudden he completely filled up his whatever he was wearing and me and there was stuff all over the place and I figured well you know Nancy's not going to be home I just have to deal with this and so you know you're just very careful and systematic and I took one piece of clothing at a time and I stuck him in the sink in the kitchen and I said well you know he can't really drown here I'm just going to be careful and I got all the dirty clothes out put them in the appropriate places and gave him a bath in the sink you put him in an empty sink when you were running around, so there was no danger of him drowning. Well, true. That was to give me some time to clean up. 
And that's a great strategy. I'll tell you, I did not bathe him when he was an infant. I held off and waited till he was... Probably closer to one and a half. Yeah. I did everything else, uh, but didn't bathe him until he was old enough for me to use a tub and have some room. I don't want him to hit the edges. Yeah, well, Pete had gotten all the way through that phase with our daughter, who's older, and he didn't give her a bath until she could reliably sit up and, you know, we all thought it was safe. And so when our son was tiny and I came home and I saw that a bath had happened, I said, oh, how nice. You gave him a bath. And Pete said, I had to. <laughs> but I guess right. it goes to show you that, you know, we do have all these reticences at first. And either through necessity or just because we want to do something, we figure out ways of doing it and ways of making it work. Yeah, and I think that's so important. I mean, we, we never want to be cavalier with our children's safety, ever, ever, ever. But you know what? We have to be as willing to to try and to think the process through and to adapt to get the job done. And I think even Russell being two, I think it's good for them to see you do that because you can see him sometimes think through how to communicate something to you. And that same thought process, he's, he's trying to adapt how he does something with you. And you can see him think sometimes, how do I do this? And so I think it's good for him to see you do that. And that's a great point. I think, as you said, the children are very adaptable and they do learn. They learn that dealing with daddy in this case is a little bit different than dealing with mommy. And sometimes they become quite protective and careful with how they treat daddy. You know, I know when I used to walk around with Allison, I would take her by the hand and she wouldn't let my hand go. Whereas with mom, she might wander away. And she was very careful. In fact, there was one place I took her on a walk to a, a football game that we heard in the neighborhood schoolyard. And so I wandered down with her. I had my cane and we were coming back home and I had to cross a street. She said, daddy, you can't go. You can't go. There's a car. And I listened, I listened, I didn't hear any cars. And I said, well, come on, no, I don't hear any cars. We, it's safe to cross. No, 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 Daddy, there's a car. I see a car. You can't go. And she wouldn't let me cross the street. It turned out there was a parked car about a block away. <laughs> and I had to literally pick her up screaming in one hand and the cane in the other hand and carry her across the street. <laughs> but she was trying to save her dad. What I keep telling Ron about Russell, I mean, this is normal for him. It's not that different for him. He he knows that he has to touch you and he has to bring things to you. He may not know, oh, he's blind and he can't see anything, but he's figured out that, hey, I have to do something different to get what I want. And they keep adapting to that. And as, you know, they get older and you explain to them, Pappy's eyes don't work and we have to do this or that. But I think it's just been normal and they've grown up with it. And it's nothing odd. It's just the way it is. And, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know about you, but, you know, people will ask me, what's it like being married to a blind man? Like you're some martyr or saint or something. <laughs> and I just, I laugh at him. I go, what's it like being married to a sighted man? <laughs> it's the same. There's nothing different at all. I mean, okay. I have to kill the bugs and I have to drive. But other than that, it's the same. <laughs> you know, how did you, as, as they move from a toddler to a kind of a preschool age kiddo and a bigger kid, how did you work out traveling with a child and, you know, whether it's a crowded situation? And I assume you adapt what you do 
depending on where you are. Tell us a little bit about how you did some of that. I'm trying to think. It was so long ago. Our daughter was very good about holding hands, and our kids in general were good about that. So that would normally work. And they were very good also about guiding me. Although when they were young, I would always take a cane with me just in case, you know, their navigation failed and I needed to take charge. You know, as they get older, I perhaps, you know, would leave my cane home if we weren't going too far. But I know sometimes when we were in malls, for example, then I would use some kind of tether because I figured then if they got even a couple of feet away, it was not only hard for me to track them down, but between the crowds and who knows who would steal them, you know, that I wanted to be a little bit more safe. Yeah. I think we made a lot of use of the backpack. We took our kids for lots of walks to the library, you know, and sometimes it would have been further than a young child may have wanted to walk, or sometimes they would get lazy after walking for a while, and we made great use of backpacks. And when they got bigger, we used the little red wagon. Right, and you know, pulled. And they were happy to sit in the wagon or sit in the backpack, and, you know, it wasn't an issue having the kid run off. It was easier and happier for everybody. You've got them into their threes and fours, even twos and threes, and you're you're reading with them. Uh, Pete, did you use a lot of print Braille books? I think the um, National Braille Press at the time was just starting their print Braille book program. And we subscribe to every one. We have a whole shelf full of those books. Those were tremendous resources. You know, the kids really enjoyed them because they had the uh, clear plastic pages with Braille on them. So I could read it in Braille and the kids could see the printed material and pictures. I'm curious, how did you handle pictures? Because I don't always know what's on the page. So the books from the National Braille Press actually had some description of the pictures in Braille also. But if I didn't know completely what the picture was, you know, sometimes you play along and, you know, if someone says, see the duck, daddy, you say, yeah, what is the duck doing? You can engage with the picture that way. Ask questions about it. What color is the duck? What do you think he's going to do next? Who does the duck see? Absolutely. Uh, Russell's preverbal, so we can't do that yet, but that's great advice. How about doing colors and shapes? Denise is working with Russell on it now, and I haven't really stepped up to try to figure out a way to do that on my end. We're working on our letters and stuff together, but for me, colors are a challenge with him. I made Braille index cards of letters and even words when they got to be a little bit older. I don't remember talking about colors much. I don't remember you doing colors because, I mean, of course, by the time the kids were born, he couldn't see them. But we had games from some of these companies where they sell lots of games made for blind folks. So we had Braille Uno when the kids got older. Well, again, you'd, you know, you'd have to know your numbers and stuff for that, but you could just play with the colors at an, at an earlier age and know what the colors are, and they're all labeled. Okay, that's an interesting way to do it. I hadn't thought about that. He's got flashcards with colors on it that I work with. All you got to do is just Braille them. Yeah, they're easy to Braille with a little mm-hmm. slate and stylus. And then for shapes, you know, a lot of kids have, we used to call it a shape sorter. So it was a board with holes in it and then blocks that were different shapes. And so you'd put the circle in the circle and the square in the square and, you know, just play with it. And and that was totally tactile, but that wasn't even from one of the adaptive companies, you know, just a standard children's toy. Right. We've got that, and we're doing that. He's got a talking shape sorter fun pot. Wow. 
Yeah, yeah, they've all gone high. It's very 21st century. It knows English and Spanish both. So, and he, oh, wow. And he changes them from one to the other. So. <laughs> the other one that I'm just starting to work with him on is catch. We've got some soft balls, and I'm, I'm thinking about trying to find a ball with a bell in it or something. I haven't gotten that far yet going to one of the lighthouses for the blind. Interestingly, uh, and I don't know if you found this or not, but his adaptation to my not being able to see hurts our game of catch. Because Russell is very good about putting things, if he wants me to have something, he will walk up and physically put it in my hands oh. and make sure that I've got it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I haven't yet gotten him to throw a ball back to me because I'll, I'll throw it to him and he thinks it's great. He squeals and runs and gets it and then he picks it up and runs back to me and firmly places it in my palms. Yeah, certainly balls with bells. As our son got older, he was really interested in basketball. So we got one of these sets where there's a little beeper at the hoop and the ball had a bell in it, and we could play basketball that way. Ah. In fact, I didn't play football with him, but I threw a football, and he'd often run it back to me or throw it back to Nancy, and I'd have him go out this way for the count of two, turn left for the count of two, go this way, and I knew about where he was going to be, and all the time he'd be yelling, one, two, three, so I knew where he was, and then I'd throw the ball to him. And, you know, I wasn't as accurate as many other dads, but this made him a great receiver. (laughs) He learned to catch a ball even if it wasn't right on target. Wow. So this actually brings up something that you're going to run into pretty soon. Most young children, when they start playing, they'll take every toy out of the toy box, spread it around the room, and when they're done, it's all over the floor. Not in our house. Our kids got taught really young that if they left a toy on the floor, either the toy or daddy was likely to get hurt. And this was a bad thing. And so, you know, we'd have friends come over when our kids were in preschool and their kids were in preschool and they'd look at our house. They're like, how do you keep all the toys off the floor? We're like, we just explained to our kids that this was important. And the kids did it. You know, they needed some encouragement repeatedly. We used to have what we called daddy's bag. And if toys were left on the floor, I'd walk around with a shopping bag and I'd walk very slowly to give them time. And I'd say, okay, whatever I find, I'm picking up, it goes into the bag and then it goes on a high shelf. And they scurry around the room, picking up all their stuff. And I only had to do that a couple of times. We're already starting to have the toys. I mean, <laughs> somebody asked me today, you know, how do you walk across his room? And I said, I, I shuffle. Shuffle. <laughs> so- <laughs> One thing that's always an adventure is feeding a young child. You know, again, their their head is squirming around. I'm looking for the mouth hole with one hand, and I have the spoon in the other hand. And I remember times Nancy coming into the kitchen saying, why is Brian's face all green? <laughs> you know, with these <laughs> smashed peas. Well, I was very anxious about when the first time I ever fed him. He was about eight months old. And um, Denise was gone. It was just me and Russell. And I, I said, oh, I'll feed him. We'll figure something out. And if I don't get much into him, you know, I'll give him a bottle. But I guess we got to start sometime. And I had him in his little high chair with his little bib on. And, and I, I decided we would te- we would feed him diced peaches. Because if I dropped that, all I had was a little dice of peach, you know, a peach die that I had to pick up. And that was easy. So I got him in his chair and I loaded up my spoon with the one little squared peach cube. And I reached my left hand across and touched his chin with the edge of my hand and started to move the spoon in and and before I could drop my hand away, he leaned forward, opened his mouth, and scored the spoonful of peach. 
Ah, two points. <laughs> oh, it's like he had rehearsed it. Oh, oh, and there he went. So I said, oh, oh, really? Do that again. I remember this very vividly. And I loaded up the spoon with another peach dye, found his chin, and this time dropped my hand as I brought the spoon. And he opened up his mouth, leaned into the spoon, and got the peach. And I fed him the whole little cup of diced peaches that way. And he did the real tricky docking maneuver for me. And I put my peach spoon down and called Denise on the, on the cell phone and said, what does Russell do when you feed him? And she said, well, he eats. And I said, does he move into the food? She said, what do you mean move into the food? And I said, well, does he open his mouth and then, you know, glorp, get the food? She said, no, he sits there like a little bird. Why? What's he doing? And I said, when I get close to his mouth, he moves to the food and eats it. He's done that ever since. That was one of his things that really amazed me because it's as if he had rehearsed it ahead of time on me. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. These kids really do adapt and they learn to do these things and accommodate and, you know, sometimes things may be a little bit messier than they would if we had some vision, but that can always be cleaned up. But somehow things do work out. Now for this week's final item, some issues that are relevant to older children, as well as some good resources on the topic of parenting as a blind person. You clearly don't have as many questions about the big kid phases, but there are things that I would imagine a blind parent might be a little bit uncertain about. You know, helping the kid with their homework, not an issue. In fact, if anything, I think it worked better. You know, the kid would come home with the textbook in print or the math worksheet in print, and Pete, of course, couldn't read it. So he'd say, okay. Read me the section of the chapter. Read me the questions. Let's go through it. And so the kid actually had to do a little more explaining, a little more digging. I think the kid wound up learning better that way instead of mommy or daddy looking at the book and saying, oh, well, here's the answer right here. You know, the kid had to learn how to find it. I think so. And describe it. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Obviously, in our family, I'm the only parent who drives. And... Regarding kids and driving, my mantra when they were growing up and they were getting involved in all these activities was carpool. (laughs) Yes. You know, and the other parents just don't even think about it. And every time one of our kids would join a soccer team or join Girl Scouts or whatever it was, I would get hold of somebody else in the activity and say, let's carpool. And they're like, oh, no, we're fine. I'm like, look, we have one driver. Can we try this? They all discovered how wonderful it was, like the first time we did it, but no one else thought to even try. Yeah, I will definitely keep that in mind for the carpooling. Well, I figure one of the conditions, once he's old enough and mature enough to have a license, will be... You know, if you want to drive, part of it's going to be driving Pappy. (laughs) There you go. So we hope that discussion has answered some of your questions. If you have additional questions, there's a wonderful book that the American Printing House for the Blind recently published by Janet Ingber and Terry Turlau, entitled Parenting with a Visual Impairment, Advice for Raising Babies and Young Children. And we will have a link to that in the show notes for this show. And I'll encourage everyone to go to the show notes for this episode where we'll have all of that information along with links to other resources where you can find accessible games, braille print books for the children and many other things. 
So just go to www.eyesonsuccess.net and look for the show notes. That's it for show number 1944. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about life as a blind music producer. Ross McGregor has produced over 300 albums during his career and was recently presented the Australian Hands of Fame Award for his lifetime achievements. We'll talk with Ross about what a music producer does and how the technologies and methods for music production and its accessibility have changed over the years. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show, or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. Browse the full archive of programs, find instructions for subscribing to the podcasts, and much more at www.eyesonsuccess.net. You can also find us on iTunes and follow us on Facebook at Eyes on Success or Twitter at underscore Eyes on Success. We hope you will join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success and have a nice day.